Welcome. We are thrilled to be here. I'm Joshua Faden, one of your co-hosts, along with Michael Carson and Pamela livingston Gaudette. Hello, Michael and Pamela. Hey there. Hi. Great to have everybody here. We are joined today by the incredible Lindy Hockenberry, who is a wonderful author of her new book, A Teacher's Guide to Online Learning, Practical Strategies to Improve K-12 Student Engagement in Virtual Learning. And the book could not come at a better time. It could not be, as it says, more practical. And it gives just incredible pieces of advice and uh, wonderful examples that teachers can really just plug and play as they're trying to improve their practice or as districts are thinking about how to continually use virtual learning even after this pandemic hopefully is behind us. So with that said, let me turn it over to Michael to give you everybody a little flavor of what we're talking about here with this incredible Thank you, Josh. Wonderful introduction to our guest, Lindy, and to the episode. I just wanted to take a moment to read a few sentences from the introduction to Lindy's book. Uh, The book reads beautifully, and uh, one of the things I think that really contributes to that is uh, just who Lindy is as an educator. Um, So there's actually a little standout quote I want to read first uh, in the introduction that says, as someone who loves to learn, I spend my spare time pondering how to make learning better. So uh, here's just a little bit about Lindy's story uh, from the first paragraph. You will learn in this book how important it is in online learning for your learners to get to know you, not only as their teacher, but also as a person. I am all about modeling. And even though you are learning via a book and not an online course, I feel it is important to start with you getting to know me. And so with that, I want to turn it over to Pam to bring Lindy into the episode. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to have Lindy here, who also, by the way, wrote a chapter of a book I wrote. So I'd like to ask you, Lindy, just to start us off, why did you decide to write a book about teaching online? You know, it it wasn't planned. It happened completely organically. In March of 2020, as we all know, when school started to shut down, I had tons of emails and pleas for help from teachers and schools just wanting to wanting help, but you know, it wasn't going well. <laughs> Online learning, virtual learning, this remote business wasn't going well. They wanted help. So I started writing and kind of created this mini guide that I called essential components to an online course. I finally just had to quit writing, put a lid on it uh, over the summer. So that was in around May, or I would say April, 2020, May, 2020. But I had so much more to say, but I couldn't, I didn't have time right then. I was going, I was moving. We started a house remodel, um, all of the chaos of COVID and job and work and all of that happening. I knew I wouldn't have time over the summer to finish writing. So I put a lid on it. I put it out in the world called an interactive notebook. Uh, And then with all plans of picking it back up. So finally, fall of 2020, I picked it back up and finished writing my full manifesto for online learning. And and I've read it. We've all read it. And we find it highly practical. Uh, You know, I saw a LinkedIn post where you mentioned writing a proposal for video conferencing for online learning something like in 2015, and every one of the conferences rejected it. 
What might be a proposal now that you would write versus then? Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I, I wouldn't be that different. The proposal I did in 2015, I submitted it to several different conferences, kind of smaller conferences, some regional conference, ed tech conferences, and some really, I think some national ed tech conferences, and it didn't get approved in any of them. And the title was something like, don't be the Wizard of Oz. And I, the reason I called it that was this idea of um, being like this head on a screen, right? So we remember from the Wizard of Oz, yes. you have the, when they finally get to the wizard and he's like this big giant green head. So that was what I was, I was getting at with those proposals is let's do virtual learning, but let's not do it where you're just this talking head on a screen type of thing. So what I would do now, honestly, wouldn't be that different. It's the same thing. Like we can't engage learners by endless hours of synchronous video calls, right? Being on Zoom or Google Meet or Teams meetings, whatever tool that you're using, that just doesn't work for lots of reasons. So um, that would be a big focus of what I would do for conferences now is figuring out how do we make that synchronous time more engaging? Adding on to that, how do we set up virtual schools correctly so that we don't have kids on Zoom, quote unquote, for eight hours a day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Great analogy. And now I'm going to look up the Wizard of Oz that scene again. <laughs> so what surprised you when you were spending time with beleaguered teachers thrown into remote emergency learning in 2020 and even 2021? What surprised me? Oh, man, lots of things. Uh, I mean, I have... I've taught online, I've taught virtually, um, various ages, adults. I did my whole master's degree online, and I just kind of assumed that people knew how to do this, and they they don't. And then I started thinking about it. I'm like, well, it makes sense because most teachers, well, we definitely weren't taught to teach that way, right? Teacher prep programs. I actually saw a thing on social media the other day. It said, um, they were asking people, it was on TikTok, and it was a video that said, teachers, tell me what your teacher preparation program didn't prepare you for. And one of the video responses was, I literally graduated like the semester before COVID. So it would have been fall of 2019. And we didn't have a single lesson in how to teach online, virtually, hybrid, blended, <laughs> like nothing like that. And then I then three months later, the, the world turns upside down, education turns upside down, right? So it makes sense. Like none of us were really taught how to teach online unless you did a graduate program that was maybe specifically on online learning. Um, so just that was super surprising to me, which it shouldn't have been. It shouldn't have been, but it was. <laughs> yeah, great. What, what are the top three things you would tell teachers to be prepared for when teaching online or hybrid? So my number one thing, and this is one of the, I kind of have these key takeaways in the book of like these ideas, like kind of like the tenets of virtual learning that I bring back over and over again. And one of them is this idea of proximity and how you do not have proximity when it comes to virtual learning. And if you start thinking about the way you yes. teach, 
in face-to-face learning, you leverage that proximity a lot as a teacher. You leverage it from a classroom management perspective, right? If you have a kid that's being disruptive, number one of the things that I was taught in my teacher preparation program is go and stand next to that student, right? You've got kids yep. talk, talking to each other while you're trying to explain something, move around the room and stand next to them. Do that proximity. Or I've got a kid that's disengaged. They're supposed to be doing this. They're not doing this. I can go and sit next to that kid, right? Proximity. And we can both look at their workbook or their device, whatever it is they're supposed to be doing and say, here, we're doing this right now. I have that proximity in my favor. You don't have that. You don't have proximity in your favor with virtual learning. So that's the number one thing that completely changes the game and makes you have to do almost everything differently in terms of the way you approach teaching in a virtual learning environment. So that would be number one. Um, Number two thing I would say for being prepared, relationships, relationships, relationships. And I could say it again and again and again. I think that was one thing um, that didn't maybe go well for a lot of schools and teachers in spring of 2020 is they tried to just go straight from, hey, we were in school on Friday. And I don't know how it went in other states. I live in Montana. This is how it went in Montana. Friday happens. It was actually state basketball tournament. I know this because my mom lives in Eastern Montana. I live in Western Montana and she was in Western Montana at the state basketball tournament. And she was driving back through on her way home. And I kept saying, they haven't shut you down yet. Like they're still allowing the state basketball tournament to happen. Like what? And my mom's going, they're not going to shut down. She actually works at a school, a small school. They're not going to shut down school. Right. Literally like Friday night, Saturday morning, maybe they finally shut down the tournament. And then she drove through, we had, we met with her and we had lunch, I think. And then a few hours later, we got to notice that schools were going to be shut down. Like this was on Sunday. School was not going to happen the next day. So that's what happened, right? So I think a lot of teachers went from Friday, we leave the building thinking we're going to come back Monday. Monday, we don't come back. So Monday, we're just going to jump back into our normal routine and try to continue what we're doing without building those relationships in a virtual environment. It's so important. That is like the major, major foundation of virtual learning. So before to get, I know that was a little bit of a tangent, but (laughs) get back to my number two thing is to say, before you can accomplish anything in a virtual learning environment and actually get to learning and meeting your standards, meeting your learning objectives, you have to develop relationships and develop a sense of community in that virtual environment. So that would be number two. Let me think. Number three, what would you tell teachers to be prepared for? Um, Have a digital course home base. I call it that. What that is, is meaning the place that your students go online, so it's digital, where all of the information from your course can be accessed, right? Mm -hmm. No matter what type of learning environment you're in, whether you're full face-to-face, fully virtual, some type of blended or hybrid model, you have to have that, right? And if you have that, it doesn't matter if a kid gets quarantined or you all of a sudden have school closes and you have to shift to virtual learning because everything's there and creating that routine to make sure students know everything is there. And this is where I go to get all information for the course. Great. You know, what do you think has changed permanently because of our pandemic experiences? 
Oh man, a lot. I've been thinking a lot about this recently and in terms of what's changed permanently in education, what's changed permanently in our world. Um, I think the big thing for me that has changed virtually is students and parents got a taste of alternative schooling and what that entails for them. I see so many people on social media that, you know, they decided they would just pack up and live in an RV and travel the, the country with their kids and their kids are able to continue their schooling virtually. So it, it opens up these opportunities or kids that are elite athletes being able to maybe spend the morning on their schoolwork and then have the whole afternoon to train, right? Whatever. I, I hear so many stories about, you know, parents and, and kids and how this has opened up their, their time freedom, right? And their ability to, to do things and experience things. So I think that is something that is not going to go away. Parents and students are going to demand that schools offer alternative schooling options, So I think this idea of like going back to normal is never going to be, I mean, of course, there's always going to be traditional physical schools and that's going to work great for some families, but there are families now that see that it could be different and are going to really demand that of schools. Great. You know, you you went into this a little bit, but I was going to ask you to think about the differences between the physical classroom versus the remote online classroom. And are there three three or more suggestions you might have for teachers to consider the differences between the physical and the classroom and uh, teaching remotely? So again, I'll say it again lack of proximity. (laughs) Proximity is the biggest thing that changes the entire game of how you teach face-to-face versus virtual. Um, So that would be number one. And the way I try to explain that to teachers is I actually use Selecti's levels of engagement. I've got a whole section on this in the book. So if you're not familiar with Schlechty's levels of engagement, you have um, ritual compliance is kind of like the it's all based in commitment versus um, what's it? Commitment and what's the other piece of it? Like a whole section in my book about this. Anyway, regardless, virtual compliance is basically the student that's playing the game of school, right? They're there, they're doing the work. They just are wanting to get their grade or whatever, but they're not really engaged. And then it goes up from there. There's another level and then there's the full level of engagement, but going down from ritual compliance, you have retreatism, which is the kid that has checked out, right? They're not causing issues. They're not, cause, they're not being disruptive, but they've completely checked out. Below that is rebellion, which is the kid that's checked out and is causing disruptive issues. Mm-hmm. Here is the key difference in what teachers have, why you have to do what I call foundations with online learning is if you have a kid that retreats or rebels, what do you do about it in a virtual environment? What do you do? Without that proximity, there's not much you can do, right? So as a virtual teacher, and you have to, it's absolutely critical that you do everything that you possibly can to not have kids retreat, right? Because once they retreat, you've completely lost them. It's really hard to get them back in a virtual environment. A lot easier in a face-to-face environment to get them back when they retreat, right? So, So that's a biggie. Um, building on that idea, the second thing I would say is 
foundations. And I have the whole second part of my book is called, literally called part two foundations, because this is so important that you build a salt. And I, I, I relate it to a pyramid. Like if you imagine online learning as a pyramid, you have this base of your pyramid, that's all these foundational elements. And if you don't have that set upright, your pyramid's going to crumble. So to, in order to prepare for any type of virtual learning environment, you have to have those foundational elements including relationship building, making sure your students are self-directed learners. They might not be right out of the gate. So you have to build that slowly. Um, And you might not be able, like I said before, to jump right into learning objectives and standards and meeting standards because you're having to build those foundational elements in order for the rest of virtual learning to be successful. Uh, So I would say that would be number two. Number one is understanding the proximity thing. Number two the foundational thing. Number three, differences between face-to-face and online. Let me think about that. What would be the third one? Um, hmm, differences. So proximity. You know, I, you know, I'm just going to leave it at those two. I think those two yeah. are, I, I think that sums up a ton <laughs> Like the the major, major differences between face-to-face and online is the proximity and the foundation elements being absolutely critical. Like I'll add one more thing there. I I say this a lot in the book too. This is another key takeaway. Face-to-face learning is a lot more forgiving than online learning. Mm -hmm. So in face-to-face learning, you have a lot more flexibility to, for example, if a kid retreats, why, right? Like you can fix that. You can help, you can do something about it. Virtual learning, you can't, right? Less forgiving. It's less forgiving. So understanding that and changing your teaching methods and the way your classroom works to, to um, prepare for the less forgivingness of virtual learning. Yes. Great. Um, considering students in different groups, such as special education, English language learners, maybe lower socioeconomic students, how do these groups fare during remote emergency learning and what lessons might we take from this to improve moving forward? Oh, good question. So equity is a big conversation right now in education across the board. Um, I do talk about this a lot in my book. I've got a whole section in one of the chapters about equity because it is a major big deal. And what one of the things that came out of COVID, which getting back to a previous question of like, what is going to permanently change is the discussions around equity and understanding that it is, you absolutely have to have, kids have to have good access and that's on the school to figure out how to provide. And a lot of schools rallied and did some amazing things during school shutdowns during COVID, like providing mobile hotspots or having buses that were like community hotspots where people could come and, and congregate, right, in more urban type areas, things like that. So those type, uh, those students that are low socioeconomic status, as a, you as a school, school, if you're a school leader and you're listening to this, like, you have to solve that or else you are going to have a major equity issue and those students aren't going to fare as well in virtual learning. In terms of special needs students, I have a chapter on that. I had two special needs students or teachers, excuse me, share about their experiences in teaching special needs 
uh, students online or fully virtually, and they actually were completely different. So it was really interesting in reading the different perspectives. One um, teaches in more of like a self-contained classroom in her typical environment. The other is more of a resource type teacher, students that maybe are have ADHD, dyslexia, that kind of thing. Um, so reading their different approaches on it. The teacher that normally is in a more self-contained type classroom, it was interesting reading her her perspective on it and her saying it actually gave me more time, one-on-one time with my students because I don't have a classroom full of 10 kids that I'm bouncing and, you know, and there's lots of noise and I'm trying to meet with this one kid and there's all this noise going on. I was able to get on a video call and have one-on-ones with that student and fully focus on that student and that student's IEP goals. Um, So I think it completely depends on uh, the setup that the school has. If the teacher does have time for that one-on-one time, I think is really, really important for special needs students. I think we're, this is one of the things where we're just going to keep learning, right? And it goes back to my previous comment about not every learning environment is great for every student. There are kids that are going to thrive online and kids that won't, just like there's kids that thrive in face-to-face and other kids that don't thrive in face-to-face, right? So I think that's going to be part of what we're going to have to do in education is provide those different options so that there are options that fit every kid and every family, right? Great. Thank you. I think now we're going to move to... uh, Michael and Josh, if you have any other questions. Yeah, thank you, Pam. I'd love to ask uh, just a question or two here and then I'll turn it over to Josh. Thank you so much, Pam, for your very well thought through questions and really setting the stage for a wonderful conversation. Uh, There are two sections of your book, Lindy, um, that really interested me. And I'll start with the first one. And that is how in the world can a lower school or elementary school teacher effectively engage young children? And how is that different and similar to older children? Great question. So I actually had the same question. So that K-1-2 age group is a group that I have not taught. I've had some really great mentors that have educated me in everything primary, (laughs) everything K-1-2, Um, And it has made me really comfortable really coaching teachers and working with teachers in those age groups. But I don't have personal experience teaching that age group. So I knew I had to have a chapter on this in the book because it was a question that came up so much over the last year and a half. Um, So I actually reached out to uh, Tracy Piltz, who is in Billings, Montana. So I'm in Bozeman. She's a couple hours east of me. Mm And she, at the time when she wrote this chapter, was teaching first grade virtually as part of Billings Public Schools virtual school. So she wrote a whole chapter on it, kind of giving her best practice strategies and tips of how to do that. Um, And honestly, it really isn't that much different. Those foundational elements are still there. The creating consistency and routine um, is so important no matter what age of student you have, K-12 adult learners, you have to create that consistency and routine with virtual learning. That was something that she mentioned is super important with K-1-2. Another one of those things that's super critical, like you can't have that go awry. You have to have that consistency and that routine. Um, 
but yeah, it was inter- it's interesting reading her perspective. Is really it's really not that different. Seesaw is a tool that comes up over and over and over again at that grade level as an amazing tool to use with any type of digital learning, whether it be fully virtual or whether you're face to face and you just have you know are using digital tools as part of that face to face learning because it's built for that age group and it has tools like I can hit a button, I can record a video right there. I can hit a button, I can record audio. I can um, draw and annotate over the screen. So it's very, um, you know, you don't have to rely on, say, a keyboard. Kids don't have to know how to read. There's a read aloud button there where it will read the question back to them if they can't read. There's also a huge family and parent component where families and parents can see all of, the, all of the work and tasks that their kids are submitting and comment on it. So how amazing is that? So that was a big thing that, came, that has come up with K-1-2 is making sure you have the right platform. And it seems like Seesaw really has it figured out and that it, it, were, it helps make digital and virtual learning work in that K-1-2 environment. Wonderful. Yeah, I've, I've worked with Seesaw as well, and it is a very powerful tool. I also wanted to ask you about, um, you have a wonderful chapter in the book as well on teaching students with special needs online. Can you speak a little bit about what some of the considerations are for teachers or special education teachers in that regard? Yeah, so again, that's what I was saying. I had um, two, and this was something I didn't have experience with either. So I did not want to write about it in my perspective, like lots of other things in the book. So I reached out to my network and I found two teachers that were willing to share their perspective on it. Um, Again, it's not that the things that they shared were not that different. The consistency, the routines, one of them talked about relationship building and that being absolutely critical to working with kids with special needs. And she said, and I quote, if your kids know you as a person and enjoy you, they're going to want to make you happy. Right. And so that was literally her strategy of of getting around like kids not submitting work was literally like I talk to them. I talk to them. That's my strategy. I build relationships. I build that sense of community. And they don't want to disappoint me because we have that relationships built. So in that instance where the kid is like, I'm going to retreat. Right. And close my device and walk away. She couldn't do anything about it that relationship came, came in. Right. And it was, no, I don't want to just, I just don't want to disappoint her. Right. So I'm going to do this and I'm going to work hard. I'm going to, I'm going to submit it. Um, so that again, the, the routine, the consistency and the relationships, those foundational elements mm-hmm. were what came in with that, with that group of students as well. I love it. I love it. Wonderful. Um, I'll ask one more uh, question. There's another chapter I want to ask about. And then Josh, I'd love to turn it over to you, my friend and co-host. Lindy, how do those teachers, especially in the older grades that need to take, uh, to give student assessments that are, you know, uh, accurate and that are secure, what, what kind of advice do you have for teachers in that regard? Yeah, you know, that was, that's always a big question is, you know, how do we make sure that assessments are valid in virtual learning environments and that, Um, You know, it's actually the student that are doing them. Most of the time in K-12 education, when we hear assessment, we tend to think of tests, right? And where we tell everyone, all right, close your books, no cheating, right? Let's do this test. 
it's not easy to do that in a virtual learning environment. I talk about that in a book and I'm very clear with that. There's nothing that I sugarcoat in this book. (laughs) Like there's like you, it's really hard to do that. So you have to think about assessing differently. And in order to think about assessing differently, I just had a conversation with a colleague about this. Hmm. You have to think about your learning objectives and you have to analyze those learning objectives. And are those learning objectives making it so that you can assess differently, right? Because having a learning objective that's based around, um, let's take, we're learning about cells, right? If my learning objective is something like uh, list the parts of a cell, well, that is pigeonholing me as a teacher to an assessment that is more like a test, right? But instead, if the learning objective is something like create a model of a human cell, right? They're still going to be putting the parts of the human cell in there. They're still getting that, but they're not having, you're not having to do it via a test. It opens it up. So what I say in the book, I have like three characteristics for assessment development to think about. And one is make sure your assessments require original thoughts and creations, right? Because if you do that, if your assessments require original thoughts from your students, they can't quote unquote cheat anymore, right? Because they can't just, your, your, your questions can't be Googleable, right? That's a good way to think about it. It can't be something like create a model of a human cell is not something I can do a Google search for and just have an answer to like that. That requires critical thinking, creation skills, right? The student to actually do that. Now, I have had questions from teachers that say, but how do I know that it's the student that's doing it and not their parents or their siblings or their friend down the street, right? So there are ways you can do that. Like, let's use the example. Let's create a a model of a human cell. So the student creates that. They take pictures. Maybe they make a video explaining that. Maybe as part of the reflection process at the end of that, you have that student record a reflection video or it could just be audio. And you're going to know if it's the student, right? (laughs) Even if it's audio, you're going to know if it's the student doing that, of them explaining that. That's going to tell you right then and there if the student really understood and was the one that really did that assessment, right? So that's just one way I like using video. Video is huge with virtual learning. And there's actually a ton of research and I cite it in the book about how important video is for lots of different things. Um, But one of them is it's a great way for that validity factor, (laughs) right? Um, And it's also a great way to develop relationships. Research literally shows that video with students and teachers in virtual learning creates a quasi relationship between the two when you see and hear the other person in virtual learning environments. So there you go. Assessments that require original thoughts and creation creations are competency-based is another element of that. Um, so, right, because if it's, if it's something that's competency-based and not memorization-based, uh, then it opens up your ability to, to do different types of assessments that do work in virtual environments. And guess what? Those assessments also work in face-to-face, right? And you're moving up blooms. You're moving to the top of blooms that create analyze, right? Versus just memorizing and regurgitating facts and information. Yes. I like to say flipping blooms on its head. (laughs) Thank you, Lindy. And I'll turn it over to you, Josh. Thanks so much, Lindy. I'm loving everything. And it's, you know, bringing to mind this aspect of creativity and choice that you're talking about and how 
those elements are so essential in life. And as you're saying, we're being forced almost in some ways to find ways to incorporate them into the educational world because trying to take what wasn't working prior to COVID and forcing it online failed miserably. Trying to just adapt and figure out, you know, least common denominator to get it to work at a, at a functional level didn't really engage the, 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 the masses. And so as you're saying here, the competency and the creativity and the choice I'm curious if you can kind of go into some of those when you talked about like what could change permanently, how can we use creativity and choice to redefine what is important in our educational system? Yeah. Well, I mean, so going back to the idea of you don't have proximity. If a student retreats, you can do nothing about it as a teacher, right? So what do you do to combat that? One of the things is, making students feel like they're part of the learning, giving them a voice, voice and choice, right? So I talk a lot about that in the book of strategies for for giving students choice. It's critical in virtual learning, right? Because it's less forgiving. We absolutely have to do that. To have engaged learners, they have to have some voice and choice in their learning. Why don't we do that in face-to-face learning, right? Why wasn't that a thing? Like, why did we have to think about that when we flipped over to virtual learning? And, and you know, so, so that's one of the things that I think we need to analyze is even if we do go back to a quote unquote new normal, right? We go back to face-to-face learning. Uh, we need to analyze those learning objectives. Are our learning objectives making it so that students can have voice and choice. So students can, uh, you know, have assessment, do assessments that are focusing on the top of Bloom's taxonomy and not just regurgitating answers. One of the big things is going back to the Google question, you have to say, ask yourself when you're assessing is, is this Googleable, right? Can I Google this question and get an answer? If the answer is yes, then you, we need to rethink what we're doing because we live in a society where we all carry computers in our pockets now. Right. So there's, there's some, yes, there's some information you need to memorize. Absolutely. There's some information in life that you need to have memorized. Um, I don't want to rely on my calculator every time I need to calculate, you know, do a basic math calculation type of thing, you know, those types of things we do need to know, but just that very fact of carrying computers around in our pocket combined with, the craziness of shift that COVID did to education means we need to we need to rethink some things, right? And we need to bring some of those tenants that are critical to virtual learning into face-to-face learning and make them the standard, right? So it doesn't matter if school closes tomorrow again because of another pandemic. Ah, don't say that, <laughs> right? Or some sort of other emergency like will be prepared. And of course, there's things that you you will have to do and you will have to change moving, but hopefully we'll be more prepared if it ever, whew, we hope it doesn't, but if it ever happens again. <laughs> right. Like you're saying too, I think the interesting part there is what what allows students to be engaged online or, you know, in, 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 in the opposite way, what prevents them from disengaging are the same things that in face-to-face, you want to hold someone's attention. You want them to be excited. You want them to have that choice and feel engaged with their learning. And so I'm curious, you have a whole section on the virtual learning from the student perspective. I'm curious if you can kind of discuss some of your findings there and what you notice from 
the students that you surveyed and really being able to understand where they're at and what benefited them during this process as well. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. So that is part of, so the the book's divided into four parts and part one is kind of the introduction part. And part of that was I did a survey of students. So, and these were students, I just put it out there, kids all across the country uh, had them respond. And there were some that responded that this was their first time experiencing virtual learning was during the the COVID forced school closures. There were some that responded that had experienced some type of virtual learning model prior to COVID. So it was interesting getting those different perspectives. And the things that they said, there were some things that were surprising. One of the things that was surprising was kids totally catch on if you're using technology as a substitute, right? And what I mean by that is if you're familiar with the SAMR model, it talks about substitution, augmentation, modification, redefinition. And the idea of a substitution is we're not doing anything new with the technology. We're just using it to do something that we could do without the technology, AKA typing over a PDF worksheet on an iPad. That is purely substitution. You're not changing anything about the learning, right? You could maybe call it augmentation because it's helping the teacher a little bit because they no longer have to drag a stack of papers home to grade every night, right? So maybe we could call it augmentation, maybe. Uh, But students caught on to that. There were comments about like, I have an iPad or a tablet type device and I wasn't given a keyboard, but yet I was told to type over the top of a PDF. And why am I doing this? Like, it was really interesting to hear their perspectives like that. Like they caught on and they were like, I don't get this. There were also questions, this just boggled my mind that, the teacher, they never got to talk to their teachers. So like the teacher was talking to the parent or the caregiver, but never directly to them and saying, I just want to talk to my teacher directly. Right. So like, again, back to that relationship factor. So that was another big thing that came out. The good things that came out where there were a lot of kids that responded that said, I loved being able to get up, get my work done by noon and spend the rest of the afternoon to myself. I also did a parent survey, by the way, and that was something that the parents talked about was, well, my kid got their work done. They were done by noon every day. And then the afternoon they spent on things that they wanted to explore. Right. And they like one of them said, my kid went and learned all these new things about X topic right in their spare time in the afternoon. So it really opened up the the opening up the time freedom. Also, the comfort. There were some comments about being bullied in school and that now that they're virtual, that's no longer a thing and that they feel so much more safe and comfortable and healthy. That came from both students and parents those comments. So those are the things that I think we have to think about. I hear a lot of negativity right now around virtual learning based upon what happened in 2020 and 2021, right? And I have to remind people, and I talk about this in the book, we didn't really experience actual online learning. We experienced crisis learning, right? And we can't use that to frame our whole understanding about virtual learning. It can be really great, and it's really great for some kids, not for all kids, right? Just like face-to-face learning isn't great for all kids. Thank you so much, Lindy. It's just lovely hearing your excitement, your passion, your knowledge, your experience 
Um, I think you have so much to offer and this book is a great way to provide that knowledge to everybody. And so um, again, it's a teacher's guide to online learning, practical strategies to improve K through 12 student engagement and virtual learning. It's available on Kindle. Where else can they get this incredible book? It's now in paperback and it's going to be a hard copy. Lindy, tell us our listeners where they can find this incredible book. Yeah. So it's on Amazon right now. If you go to the short link is bit.ly. So B-I-T dot L-Y slash teacher's guide to online. That's all lowercase, no spaces, no underscores, anyway, anything teacher's guide to online. That will take you right to the Amazon listing right now at the recording of this episode. There is the Kindle ebook version. There will soon be, as Josh said, the paperback and a hard copy as well. So that is the, the best way to get the book. Excellent. And we'll put all of that information so people don't have to try to understand how to write bit and everything. It'll be on all the notes so that people can just click right on it, go right to it, get this amazing book in their hands and be able to really use this great information. Lindy, I want to turn it back over to you for any final thoughts, any final comments, things you just want to share or things like, if I had just been able to say this, I'd feel happy. So go for it. <laughs> you know, I think I just want to stress that uh, this book, I, I mentioned kind of how it organically came about. And I didn't mention one of the things of why it organically came about was when I started looking for resources in March and April of 2020 for K-12 virtual learning, there was literally nothing out there. Now, if you go and you search Amazon now for online learning K-12, or virtual learning K-12, there's a lot more out there now in response to the COVID shutdowns of schools, right? There is a lot more out there, but still not a ton. So that was one of the reasons why I, I wrote the book. And we were talking before we started recording the podcast today about how much time and effort it takes to publish a book. I was very naive. I had no, absolutely no idea. So I think I mentioned in the book that this was literally a labor of love for me. Um, was just trying to help teachers, like hearing the cries for help. I'm still hearing those cries for help, by the way, as we speak. Um, there's still schools that are having to shut down or teachers that are having to teach at home because they're quarantined and their kids are in the classroom. And, you know, all of these crazy blended virtual hybrid, whatever you want to call them, models out there. This book will help you. It's very much focused on, it's literally called, the subtitle is Practical Strategies because it's not all fluff. It's practical things that you can do right now that are backed by research. Research, And I do cite um, that research throughout. If you're listening to this and you're like, you know what, I'm not teaching virtual, I'm not teaching online right now. And I don't have any plans to in the future. It is called The Teacher's Guide to Online Learning, but so much of the information in the book applies to just using technology in your classroom. And so many of the strategies and the tools that I talk about um, and the idea of like creating a digital course home base, if you don't have that right now, you, you have to. As I mentioned, as a teacher in 2021, you have to have that. So there's a whole chapter on that. So I think you will still find a lot, of, get a lot out of the book, even if you're not teaching in some type of online or, or virtual model right now. Excellent. Thank you so much, Lindy. Always nice to have more optimism being amplified in our educational world. Yes. You're one of our favorite guests, but really all of our guests would like. <laughs> <laughs> Great. It was a great time and, and, and it's a great book and I really enjoyed reading it and I go back to it sometimes and say, oh, what about this? Very nice. <laughs>